0: From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. One of my favorite conversations on Deep Background this year, and judging by downloads, one of your favorites too, was my interview with Professor Carl Hart, a Columbia University neuroscientist who argues that our policies towards recreational drug use are far more harmful than the substances themselves. In today's episode, we're gonna approach related issues, but from a different angle. We're going to talk about the emergent research on the efficacy of psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and the associated question of recreational use of psychedelics. There's been an explosion of research, which we're going to hear about shortly, from one of the leading experts on the topic. That's Dr. David Rabin, who's a neuroscientist, a board certified psychiatrist who does psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and is also the co founder and chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience. He's going to talk to us about some of the new research in the field, what the mechanisms are for why and how psychedelic assisted psychotherapy seems to be working, and what it tells us about the brain and its capacities to heal in general. Dave, thank you so much for joining me here on Deep Background. I want to begin with some research that's gotten a lot of attention in the last several months, and that is research that looks at new psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy approaches, and at least so far, seems to produce some extraordinarily impressive experimental results. And since this is your field and you both study it at a scientific level and also are a practitioner, I want to invite you to start by saying what you think of as the most impressive recent results, and then we'll talk in a little bit more depth about what those studies show.
3: Sounds good. Yeah, I appreciate you for again for having me. Always a pleasure to share this conversation because I think that we're at a point in mental health in particular where we're starting to identify tools to treat mental illness that are reaching a level of success in terms of management of symptoms and remission long-term remission of mental illness in particular like depression and anxiety that we haven't ever seen in the field of mental health and so i think one of the things that's that's really exciting and also challenging about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is that it, it is a full paradigm shift away from the current way that we treat mental illness to one in which we really focus on short courses of treatment that, for example, with MDMA, which is 3,4-methylene-dioxymethamphetamine, which I would say is beyond the experimental phase, it's well into the FDA phase three trials demonstrating tremendous results very consistently. What we're seeing is, in, is that with just three doses of, of MDMA with two therapists present over the course of 12 weeks of psychotherapy, those three doses of MDMA in people who are completely treatment resistant with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, having tried everything under the sun and never having had significant symptom remission or relief that exists that lasts over the long term without daily medication management. These people have three doses of MDMA and 12 weeks of psychotherapy in a placebo-controlled trial, and it, right after the treatment is over, 12 weeks and two months out, something like 55% of these people are completely in remission. They're no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD. However, what's even more exciting is that one year out, because we really care about durability of response, right? one year out, we see that 67% of these people are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD without any additional treatment. So that's what's really incredible is that these people seem to be Able to be taught using the medicine in an accelerated fashion how to manage their own healing process more effectively and then continue that process after the treatment is effectively finished.
0: Let's dive into this study uh, that you're talking about, and this is comes out of Johns Hopkins, if I'm not mistaken. Although I think there are some other affiliated centers that have been doing similar research. Is that right?
3: So this study is not explicitly at Johns Hopkins. This is a international trial, actually. So ah. so the trial that is centered at Hopkins, which is equally exciting, I would say, but is at a slightly earlier stage in terms of the FDA, I believe it's in phase two, not phase three, is a psilocybin trial. And that is used predominantly for depression. It's equally exciting work. But what we're seeing, and the study that I mentioned earlier, that's the furthest along is the MDMA for treatment-resistant PTSD study. That's an international trial at, I think, over 20 clinical sites that are distributed throughout Canada, the US and uh, the EU and Israel.
0: Thank you, so thanks for that clarification. Let's talk about this international trial in that case. So a question that immediately came to my mind when I first read about this research is the question of placebo effect and double blinding. I think the study is billed as double blind, which means that in principle, neither the person receiving the treatment nor the psychotherapist Uh, who's doing the psychotherapy sessions, is supposed to know whether the person is in the target group who's received MDMA or is not.
3: That is correct.
0: So how is that possible? I mean, is it conceivable that a patient would not know that he or she was on MDMA at the dosage level that is being used in the study? And is it conceivable that the therapist would not?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think this is a question that Has always been a challenging one to answer when we're looking at these kinds of studies. And also, just to take a step back, when we're looking at any study of a complex treatment program or a natural treatment, natural treatment program like a complementary or alternative medicine program, acupuncture being a great example, it's very, very difficult, notoriously difficult to do double blind placebo controlled trials because how do you create an adequate placebo or active control group that is consistent with the blinding process. I think MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies that is running the MDMA trial and has run and funded most of the MDMA trials to date through the FDA, have worked very closely with the FDA to come up with a valid and clinically acceptable placebo group. And it's evolved over time. It wasn't always the way it is today. I think, I believe that in the previous trials, they were using niacin, which causes a warmth and a flushing that is has a lot of the physical feelings that are similar to those that are experienced with MDMA without the emotional component as much. And I believe that in the current trial, they're using a sub-threshold dose of MDMA. So they're using a dose of MDMA that's lower than what would be required to provide an active peak effect. And there's a dosing threshold that we know of that's critical to achieve that peak effect. But I think the data speaks for itself because when you look at the phase two data, which comes from the first 100 plus veterans, or mostly veterans that were treated with PTSD, you can look at the placebo groups data. And both groups, by the way, are getting two therapists for the entire treatment course, they're getting the same therapy sessions, the same eight hour therapy sessions with sleeping over afterwards with constant care and attention. And the point of the treatment is that the therapy itself is actually very potent, right? So even in the people who received completely inactive placebo or MDMA that was below threshold, these people just with the excellent therapy alone in the trial with these two therapists who are extremely well trained and and extremely trauma oriented in their delivery of care, we're seeing a roughly twenty seven percent remission rate in terms of people having significant reduction in symptoms after the treatment is completed about two months out. However, I think the real tell is that when you go and look at one year out, the folks who received active MDMA have an increased rate of recovery. So it goes from 55% to 67% symptom-free. When you go back and look at the placebo group, that group actually had about 50% of those people relapse into symptomatic PTSD. So are some of the therapists able to tell that a patient or or a research subject has received MDMA versus a placebo? It's possible. It is hard to tell sometimes in the therapeutic experience. It is possible that they know, but the delivery of therapy is the same either way. They're still working with the person to do the same work with the medicine on board or not. And that's one of the things that I think is really fascinating about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is that it's not called psychotherapy assisted psychedelic work right it's called psychedelic assisted psychotherapy what we're testing is is the medicine catalyzing the psychotherapy experience we would normally be offering someone and giving them or empowering them with the ability to take the healing process into their own hands and really start to work on themselves after the process is over And that is absolutely what the data is showing, which is extremely promising. And it's directly contradictory to, which I think is important to note, the existing paradigm of mental health, which is if you stop taking your SSRIs, you stop taking your antidepressants or whatever your daily prescription medicine for mental health symptoms, that your chances of relapse are almost inevitable, which is a really depressing statistic.
0: In that case, let's turn to the question of mechanism. I would love to hear why you think this works. In general, when I have read about this and spoken to a few people, the magic word that is often deployed uh, as though it solved all of our questions is the word neuroplasticity. That seems to me to be an opener rather than a closer. And I'm very curious to hear how you think about this.
3: It's a great question. And I love the way that you look at neuroplasticity as an opener and not a closer. You're absolutely right when we think about psychedelic medicines on the whole taking like a 10,000 foot view kind of looking down at all the whole spectrum of medicines that we call psychedelic or psychoactive what we're really looking at is a group or a class of medicines that are most accurately referred to as non-specific amplifiers so what this means is that if you whatever you take into the experience Whether it's thoughts of self-gratitude, self-love, self-compassion, and a therapeutic orientation towards healing yourself, or if you bring in shame and guilt and fear and uh, a lack of safety in your environment or within yourself, whatever you bring in, that is what will be amplified by the psychedelic experience. So that is something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand, which is that the psychedelic medicine is non-preferential to positive feelings or negative feelings when you induce neuroplasticity in that context you can train the brain to think differently but if you are not prepared adequately and you bring in a lot of negative self-referential thinking and you're not prepared to work on and you don't have the right support systems around you to work on it you're not in a safe environment or all of the above then you can actually Increase the strength of wiring and neural connections in your brain to favor thinking about yourself in a negative way. You can actually. Can I I just pause you? Can I pause you for a second
0: there? Because that's this is completely fascinating and also a little scary. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, you know, in theory, no one would think to do this. But if one ran this experiment, as it were, the opposite way, and you gave people psychedelics and put them in a clinically controlled setting, and then made them feel terrible about themselves, you're suggesting that the the drugs would have an amplifying effect such that you could maybe make people much, much, much worse off than they would have been without that, right? So you could amplify a PTSD experience perhaps, or a traumatic experience, for example, or you could d- drive lack of self-esteem or various other antisocial outcomes. Am I, am I hearing that correctly? And is there any experimental evidence for that?
3: Yeah, you're, you're Ultra, as one example right? I think that, you know, we see that in some of the studies that the CIA conducted on unsuspecting folks who were given psychedelic medicine in an unsafe or a experimental environment that was not soothing or therapeutic, we saw very, very negative outcomes, some of which resulted in suicide.
0: So I naively say no one would do this, but but you're telling me the CIA did in fact uh, do this in the 50s and 60s and even into the early 70s when MKUltra was going on.
3: Right, there is evidence that this did occur, and that there were very substantial negative consequences from these kinds of conditions that even resulted in self harm. And I think that we the but the best example of this in a non experimental setting is the real world. Right, we see that people all the time. You know, there's a estimated to be over a million new users of MDMA every year in the United States. Right, there's probably an almost equal amount, if not more, of psilocybin uh, mushrooms that is a huge number of people these are people who are using this medicine recreationally in a generally unguided environment and they're new to it and so those are the people where we often see like in my practice where i'm one of the few psychiatrists that actually not only does psychotherapy but i'm trained to help people navigate challenging psychedelic experiences and i a big part of my practice is helping people recover from feeling re-traumatized as a result of an unsafe or unpleasant psychedelic experience so this is a very real thing that we see happen part of the reason why we actually started uh, the psychedelic news hour on clubhouse is to help educate the general community about how to avoid these very very specific and unpleasant experiences that are that are easily avoidable but are also easy to step into by accident if you're not paying attention and don't know what to look out for
0: what you're describing is something with very significant risks if administered in the wrong setting. And if people are using MDMA, for example, or psilocybin recreationally in the numbers that you're marking, you know, a million new users a year, that means almost everybody's using it in an unsupervised way. And presumably a lot of those people are gonna have bad experiences. If that's right, it's a very different narrative than sometimes one hears.
3: Well, there is risk. And I appreciate you bringing up the point that we need to make sure we understand that there is risk from using any of these medicines to augment or alter our state of consciousness as they are non-specific amplifiers. We also should acknowledge that from a objective perspective, a scientific perspective, the risk of these medicines, is substantially lower for most probably 95-99% of people even than it is with things like cocaine, opiates, uh, benzodiazepines, and many other prescription medicines that are scheduled by the DEA at a level that is lower and more accessible than psychedelic medicines. THC, for instance, is still schedule one drug, so is MDMA and psilocybin. I think the question is that if these medicines are accessible to everyone through the legalization process that is happening, for example, in Massachusetts, it's happened in Denver, in Oregon, in certain places in California, then are we doing a disservice to folks if we don't take the time to properly educate them about what the risks are and how to do it safely, right? It almost seems to follow less of a cannabis path and more of, I mean, it's following the cannabis path to some extent, but it seems to be following at a larger level the absence-only education path with sex, right? It's like we know people from thousands of years of research of looking back in history, we know people used drugs to access altered states of consciousness, whether they came from plants or were synthesized. We know people have sex to feel good, to bond with each other, to alter states of consciousness. We know that both of these types of experiences are very powerful for people, and they're going to seek them out no matter what. If we do not teach people how to have safe sex and what the potential consequences are of not having safe sex, then people are going to do what they're going to do unsafely, right? And it's going to cause a lot of problems. And we've seen that. And at the same time, if we teach people how to have safe sexual relations with people, how to use drugs safely, we see the positive outcomes there. So I think that what we ultimately, the responsibility is not. To disseminate these medicines as quickly as possible, regardless of how people use them, and let them just choose without having any guidance. I think the responsible thing to do that a lot of us agree on the clinical world, the medical world, and I believe also in the indigenous cultures that have been using this for a long time is to combine our efforts and our wisdom from all sides and say, okay, here's your guidebook, right? Here is the basics that you need to know, the few points coming in that you need to know to prepare adequately to have the best possible experience that you can have because it really you know like you said it, it there is risk and at the same time if if we take the time to say spend you know focus on 3 to 5 points that we can do to make sure that our environment is safe we're feeling emotionally safe and comfortable and of course physically safe spiritually safe and we can have that for the course of our psychedelic experience which is altering our state of consciousness and making us vulnerable for lack of a better term to shifting meaning about ourselves then we can actually have a lot more control over that environment than we think and thankfully i would say looking at the recreational use cases thankfully we do not see as many harms being done by people misusing these medicines as we thought we might however I think the concern is that we might see more if recreationalization across the U.S. spreads without the accompanying educations required. We'll be
0: right back.
1: As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet?
2: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now.
4: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic.
0: Dave, I want to turn back for the last segment of our conversation to some of the scientific underpinnings of how this amplification process works. And I guess what I'd like to do is ask you about this from two angles. The first is from your clinician's angle to ask you what it's like when you are doing psychotherapy with a patient who is on a dose of psychedelics compared to what it's like to do the identical form of talk therapy with someone who isn't. And then after you've talked a little bit about that, maybe we'll talk about some of the underlying chemistry and how the brain chemistry might be facilitating those differences. So the first question is really What's it like for you in the room when you're doing the treatment? Does the patient feel different?
3: That's a great question. So it's really just about tools. When we think about the psychotherapy approach, my approach is the same, relatively the same, regardless of who I'm working with or what their condition is. It's empathy first, non-judgment, radical acceptance, leaving my own baggage at the door, whatever has been going on in my life that day or that week that might be stressful for me. I do not bring it into the session. I'm entirely 100% focused on the individual I'm working with, listening to them and making sure that they know they're heard in the experience. And and, and sometimes it involves holding hands, but it definitely involves direct eye-to-eye contact and a practice of empathic listening where the client clearly is aware and acknowledges that they are being heard non-judgmentally by me. That is the foundation of all psychotherapy, no matter what kind of therapy you do, whether it's psychedelic, assisted, or not. So in people who have had very mild to moderate trauma, for instance, or mild to moderate issues of depression, where I can engage with them enough and me letting them know that they're heard makes them feel safe enough that they can really dive into the experience and make positive change as a result of that experience because they feel safe. However, when people have had very severe trauma or very severe episodes of depression, it's sometimes very difficult for those people to feel safe. And sometimes they haven't felt safe in years and they can't remember when the last time was that they did feel safe. And no matter what I do emotionally empathetically even holding hands or or giving them something like apollo or other tools that work to help settle the body and boost the vagal parasympathetic nervous system activity to help facilitate recovery and bonding and engagement in the session it just doesn't quite cut it and they can't lean into the experience so for those people When we give them a psychedelic medicine like ketamine, as an example, which is I want to bring up because it's the only currently legal psychedelic medicine that we have access to. And it's very short acting and very powerful and is safe for clients to actually use at home. We can see that the medicine, number one, is catalyzing the safety response for these people. So more importantly than anything else, what we hear from our clients is that when they do therapy with us without the medicine and then they add the medicine, they often say, I haven't felt this safe in my recent memory. I don't remember feeling this way about myself without judging myself since childhood. I haven't felt my constant ruminative negative thoughts stop or pause for as long as I can remember. And as soon as they have that experience, it's like a wake-up call because they remember a, a feeling, they remember a state of being that they had before, it's familiar. But it's something that they forgot how to access because of a bunch of other stuff that happened in the meantime that interfered. And now, once they're reconnecting with that part of themselves and they realize that's something they can access, then we use the medicine as a tool to teach them not that they require the medicine to access that state every time they want to get there, but that the medicine is a teacher and a tool to show them experientially that they can feel safe. And that they so have let, to really me, access let me, this.
0: Let yeah. me ask you about that's totally fascinating. And let me ask you about what you think is happening. So when the person then says, "Oh, I remember what it was like to feel safe, and now I can get back to that again," is it your view that there was a kind of neural pathway that was it was always it always existed? It still existed, but it was difficult to access it. And you are helping the person to access it and then learn to access it without your presence. Or is that too literal? Because on that account, you're not necessarily creating a new pathway; you're just opening an access point to a pathway that already existed at an earlier life stage, but that was kind of thwarted.
3: That's exactly right. And going back as far as Hippocrates, who's thought to be the founder of Western medicine, Hippocrates said that healing comes from—I might have butchered this quote—but that healing comes from within us and within the individual that it is not for us as clinicians to, be the, to, to identify as the source of a patient or client's healing experience. It is for us to use the tools that we have access to and use our own healing abilities to facilitate that person's empowerment, to learn that they can heal themselves and that is the source of their healing. Is it
0: possible that for that small number of patients whose trauma was introduced already in, in the earliest stages of childhood, that for such a person, the approach might be less effective because that person might never have managed to create the sense of safety or security that you're describing that you're trying to to access. But that might not be the same as building that from scratch if you didn't have it.
3: That's a great point. I'm sure there is a subset of people that has a much more difficult time finding that familiar feeling of safety from the past and reconnecting with that. There are also people who connect with it very easily, and then there's everyone in between. I think that, interestingly enough, it doesn't necessarily matter when the trauma has happened. And the reason why I say that is because of the work of Rachel Yehuda from Mount Sinai over the last 30 or 40 years showed that these changes that trauma induces to our bodies are actually Stored not just in the way that our neurons talk to each other like Eric Kandel found, but they're actually stored all the way down into the epigenetic code, which is the code that's on top of our DNA that tells every cell in our body to either increase or decrease expression of certain proteins like cortisol, which we're all familiar with as one of the most important stress response proteins. And so if you've experienced trauma in a certain way, that trauma does not even have to be from your own lifetime. It can be trauma from your parents. It can be trauma from your grandparents that they experienced that caused changes to their gene expression patterns as what was likely an evolutionary coping mechanism to help them adapt stress in their environment, but they never actually processed it or sorted it out when they were restored to an environment of safety. And so they ended up passing on the epigenetic changes or these expression pattern, gene expression pattern changes to their offspring that they were born with. And that results now, we know, thanks to Rachel's work, in a predisposition to developing PTSD and other mental health disorders and potentially even metabolic disorder. But whether or not psychedelic medicine assisted psychotherapy is less equipped to be able to treat something like that, I think is still up for debate. I think what we see is that it actually works fairly well. On all of these folks, whether or not they remember a traumatic event specifically or not, whether or not they can recall an event in their specific lifetime or not, I think going back to your original question what we're about the mechanism, what we're seeing happen neurobiologically is that these medicines are facilitating activation of the 5-HT2A serotonin receptor that is highly localized in the emotional cortex, but it's in our cortex as a whole of our brains, which is where all our memories are stored, all our memories about how we know ourselves and the world are stored. It turns out from a lot of other work with uh, antidepressant medications like SSRIs, which also uh, increase serotonin at those receptors and psychedelic work from Franz Wolleweiler in Switzerland with LSD and psilocybin, that it's fairly clear at this point that the activating that receptor in a burst manner with a burst of serotonin, not constant serotonin, but a burst which psychedelic medicines facilitate and meaningful experiences facilitate, induces a state of perceptual shift in meaning or an opportunity to change the way we perceive meaning from our environment and from ourselves. So if you think about the nonspecific amplifier idea, when you take a psychedelic medicine, you can change your meaning of the world to be potentially more positive or more negative or stay the same based on the environment that you go into, your inside set and your outside environment setting that you bring into that experience. And you have a setting of safety. What happens is we can become aware of things that have happened in the past, things that possibly have been buried beneath our memory or things that have even happened in past generational trauma that we did not know about or did not know much about. And then people have the opportunity a very unique time-limited opportunity to re-experience and go back through their lives the most salient and critical events that were most meaningful to them that made that to them made them who they were, and reevaluate those from a standpoint of radical safety and non-judgment, so that we can understand that these events or experiences that we thought made us who we are are just experiences that we make who we are out of.
0: One last question about this. Dave, because what you're saying is very, very rich and fascinating and probably deserves its own further conversation. It's interesting to me that one of the things that happened, you know, sort of roughly speaking in the 80s and 90s with the rise of interest in the underlying neurochemistry as a determinant of mental well-being is that there was a simultaneous reduction in respect for talk therapy as an effective Means of improving people's mental well being. In what you're saying, where you describe the serotonin burst creating the possibility of a perceptual shift, you said a perceptual shift in meaning. And then you described the psychotherapeutic process in terms that would have been extremely attractive to classic talk therapy advocates, really going all the way back to Freud, in which the human being, with guidance and conversation with another human being, is achieving shifts in meaning. And on that account, the the nonspecific amplification of psychedelics works because talk therapy works. It works not because it's in any way independent of, and that's what makes it go. And so I guess I'm wondering if you would maybe close with just some reflection on, you know, has this science gone a pretty far distance towards rehabilitating the idea of talk therapy as meaning making, but through this mechanism of amplification, increasing the probability that that shift in meaning making could take place more reliably, more rapidly, and for a larger number of patients.
3: Absolutely. And I think that since you brought it up, just to juxtapose what was happening in the Freudian era of psychotherapy versus the current era, I think what is really interesting is that the original Freudian approach in large part was about the therapist making meaning for the patient, right? So it was a very, what we call now a directive approach. And in the current paradigm, but I think that the what psychedelic medicine assisted psychotherapy has taught us in the therapy world is really emphasizing the importance of safety to and autonomy in an autonomy and by autonomy, I mean like agency in the individual client's experience, the client that seeks to be healed has to be the person where the ideas about healing come from. right? Then we as particularly in the psychedelic space do a non-directive approach where we guide the individual inside to discover from themselves what they want out of their healing process and what their inner voice or their intuition is telling them they want to achieve. And then we work with them to sort out what that means. And so instead of meaning making for them, which is the old way of thinking about it from the Freudian perspective, we are teaching them how to make meaning for themselves with the medicine as a facilitator and tool. And that is really the transformation that I think mental health is going to take in the future.
0: That's a very rich, attractive vision. I think it deserves greater exploration and, and thought beyond what we can do here. But I really want to thank you for an exemplary clarity in your description, Dave, in helping us see both the practical side and the scientific side and the underlying theories of mechanism that are emerging and helping us understand some of the research. It was a really fantastic conversation. I learned a huge amount uh, and I'm really grateful to you. Thank you.
3: No problem. My pleasure.
0: We'll be back in a moment.
2: Take your business further at tmobilecom slash now.
0: Listening to Dr. Dave Rabin, I was genuinely fascinated and in certain ways really surprised by some of the conclusions of his analysis. First, very helpfully, he defines psychedelics as non specific amplifiers that is, substances that amplify a series of psychological processes either to encourage and amplify good results, such as empathy, connection, and safety, and thereby to help us overcome bad trauma, but also neutrally as capable of amplifying negative experiences. And as he pointed out, that's not just pure abstract theory. There actually is some evidence from unsanctioned CIA experiments with psychedelics from the 1950s to the 1970s that suggests some very bad results when the amplification was negative. From this analysis of psychedelics as non-specific amplifiers, lots of fascinating things emerge. One is the tremendous importance of anyone who's going to use psychedelics doing it in a context and a setting that will amplify in a positive way and not in a negative way. That's a topic that deserves much more conversation in the course of the policy discussion about the potential legalization of psychedelics that's going on right now. And it suggests that the paradigm that many of us have been expecting, where gradual legalization in a handful of symbolic venues leads to a broad societal reconsideration, may have to be rethought through the lens of the question of what harm can be done using psychedelics alongside the question of the benefits. Now, Dr. Rabin was very clear that in his view, the positive capacities of psychedelics vastly outweigh their negative capabilities. At the same time, he was open to the idea that we ought to think carefully about context and setting in order to assure that all of that happens. Then, on the question of the fundamental underlying science, I was truly fascinated to hear that The goal of the nonspecific amplification is actually to facilitate, through bursts of serotonin, a change in perception that counts as, in his view, meaning-making. Those shifts in meaning-making, according to the theory that Dr. Rabin is expanding, are shifts that can fundamentally alter in positive ways the way we experience the world, not just during those experiences, but more broadly and in the follow-on. This mechanism is still at the stage of being a hypothesis, but it's a fascinating hypothesis and one very much worth exploring in months and years ahead. Broadly speaking, I think it's fair to say that the United States is undergoing the beginnings of a substantial shift in public attitudes and understanding towards psychedelics. And this conversation helped me tremendously to begin to understand some of the working theories and some of the practices that are being used by practitioners in the field to try to make sense of how our mental health might be improved and engaged through psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Until the next time I speak to you, breathe deep, think deep thoughts, and have a little fun. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mola Board. Our engineer is Ben Talladeh, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane-McKibbin. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you like what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background.
1: As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet?